are listening to Real Presence Radio. In the next hour, we have Dr. Jan George with us from Sacred Heart Productions, teaching on the New Testament letters. Dr. George, a retired university teacher of literature, has a Master of Theology from the University of Dallas. She is with us today covering Colossians chapter 3 and chapter 4, and then the letter to Philemon, which include the following two topics, a life freed from the slavery of sin, and second, created free by God, set free by Christ. Tune in at this time each week when Dr. George will be walking us through the New Testament letters from Knowing the Scriptures Bible Study Program, produced by Sacred Heart Productions. Accompanying lessons for each week can be found online at sacredheartproductions.org, along with lessons and study guides for other New Testament books. Knowing the Scriptures Bible Study is designed to help people understand Scripture in light of sacred tradition. All lessons include related questions and relevant readings from the Catechism of the Catholic Church. Knowing the Scriptures program is produced by Sacred Heart Productions, whose mission is to proclaim Christ and His love for His Bride, the Church. And now, here's Dr. George speaking about a life freed from the slavery of sin. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit. Amen. Just as St. Paul has done in previous letters, after he begins by explaining the mysteries of Christ and the truths or doctrines of our salvation, he then turns to a moral exhortation. We find a moral exhortation in the second half of a number of his letters because St. Paul understands that the moral life is closely tied to our understanding of, to our appreciation of the freedom that we have been given in Christ. Now, to understand then the moral exhortation in Colossians chapter 3, we're going to begin by going back for a minute to what happens in salvation history after the creation of man. We know that God creates man in his image and likeness. Man has a dignity and freedom given to him by God and guaranteed by God. But Adam and Eve, in turning away from God, actually abuse their freedom. Our freedom is given to us so that we can live in God freely, so that we can, in knowing the good, will choose the good and therein embrace, live fully, that freedom we have in God. Now, turning away from God then, man, in choosing sin, enslaved himself to sin. In choosing sin, we invite sin to be our master. We become a slave to sin. In this, we are not only enslaved within ourselves, we lose our own freedom in the Holy Spirit, but we become enslaved to the world. So that, in the beginning, in the fall, man passed from the paradise of freedom to the slavery of this world. 
From the outset then, as human history attests, there was wretchedness and oppression born in the human heart as a consequence of man's abuse of his freedom. We were enslaved to sin. We were enslaved to the devil. We were enslaved to death. God, loving man, sees this and immediately sets in place his plan to deliver man, to set him free, to establish him again in true freedom. And this, of course, is the whole story of salvation history. In making a people his own, the Israelites, God speaks to them through the events of salvation history to help them understand his plan, what he is doing for man, what he will do in his son in the fulfillment or in the fullness of time. So Israel had to suffer in a historical and literal way slavery, oppression under Egypt. Now, this is a historical truth, but God was teaching them about what it feels like to live in slavery. God was also showing Israel what he would do for them through his power because he loved them. So that we have at the center of salvation history this great liberation or deliverance of God's people, this freeing them from oppression and slavery. God frees them from Egypt. He sets them free. They begin their journey in the desert, during which time God speaks to them and teaches them. And he also is guiding them at the same time into the promised land. It's important for us to note that when they come into the desert of Sinai, that God reveals his law to them on the holy mountain. This has to do with the deliverance or freedom that he has been talking about. Therefore, the Ten Commandments, the Decalogue, as the Church tells us, must be understood in the context of the exodus, of the deliverance, God's great liberating event at the center of the Old Covenant. God is telling them what it means to live as a free people. That's what the Decalogue is actually about. Now, if we have a worldly mentality, if we don't understand the covenant, people tend to look on the Decalogue as a binding thing, as a form of bondage, when in fact it's actually the opposite. It's about the covenant. It's about freedom. If we look at the very first phrase of the Decalogue, the very first word that God speaks, he speaks about freedom. What does he say to them? I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage, out of the house of slavery. So that is the first thing God speaks about, their freedom, their liberation. Therefore, the commandments take on their full meaning within the covenant. The covenant by which God makes them his own people, a free people. Man's moral existence, therefore, our moral life, has its meaning, finds its meaning in and through the covenant. 
if we understand that, then we come to understand that the commandments express the implications of what it means to belong to God. In other words, the moral life is the life of freedom, the life of liberation of a liberated people, the people of the covenant. Now we turn to chapter 3 of St. Paul's letter to the Colossians. This is why he begins the chapter by saying, you need to look at the things that are above. He is reminding us, we have been set free in Christ. We are a spiritual people. People of the Spirit are people of freedom. He says, you are heavenly citizens. Christ is your life. Our life here on earth is hidden with Christ in God. This has certain implications. We must live as the free people we are. That's why St. Peter refers to this. He tells us that we are slaves of God. This whole matter of the way in which we are servants and the way in which we are free, he says, so behave like the free people that you are. Something we will get to more when we deal with the second question. So in verse 5 then he says, it is because of this, because you are a covenantal people in Christ, that you must kill in yourselves everything that is, that is earthly. You must destroy in yourselves all sin. And so he goes on in his exhortation. He is not afraid to repeat his moral exhortations. We hear some of the same words, the same phrases in the various letters, partly because he knew the letters were being sent to the different regions, the churches in the different places. He wanted everyone to get this message. But there's something else in it. St. Paul knows that because we tend to forget, our memories are weak, even with regard to salvation history. The Spirit knows we need to be reminded of things over and over again, even of things we have already been told, even of things that we, in fact, know in our heart, but we haven't embraced fully or completely yet. We've embraced them only partially. So he begins by talking about the kind of purity of heart and mind demanded of the people of God. Now, when we turn to God, there's a point in our lives, oftentimes as adults, we may have been Christians all our life. We may have been baptized as infants. But there comes a point in time whereby, through grace, we begin to embrace fully and in a new way the covenant that we have actually entered into with God. We speak of, of adult conversion of heart, where all of a sudden we truly desire to know and to live as God's people. So that we turn away, we put to death, we strip away from ourselves all grave sin. The first thing we do is ask ourselves, is there anything in my life that gravely contravenes the law of God? We begin living the commandments fully, perhaps for the first time in our life. In a way, St. Paul is speaking of this, but in another way, when he talks about the kinds of sins common to mankind, there are, in all of these cases, there are ways in which we contravene God's law of truth and charity 
in lesser ways. In other words, our lives are still filled with bad habits, vices, venial sins, imperfections. There is no end, really, to the spiritual battle, the good fight, that we must fight all our lives long against sin. So when he calls the people of God to get rid of all vice, all sexual vice, all impurity, he is speaking of impurity of mind, of body, of heart, of all uncontrolled passions and desires, of greed, of lust, he says, of greed and lust. They are the same things as worshiping a false god. We all have greed in us in some form or another. We have attachments to worldly things, to creatures, to ourselves, to the kinds of things that satisfy us, that comfort us, that respond to our own definition of peace and happiness. And we must put to death, as he says, everything in us that is earthly, that is transitory, that is imperfect. We must get rid of all anger, hot temper, quick temper, he says, all abusive language, foul language. Perhaps we have purified our language, but what imperfections remain in our language? Do we ever speak imprudently? Are we inappropriate, immodest in what we say? Have we gotten rid of swearing in our language, and the only time we use it is when we're really angry, or we've hit our thumb with a hammer. God is saying, there are no exceptions to this. We must, having gotten rid of grave sin, habitual kinds of sin, we must purify our heart and mind so that we can have this steadfastness in the spirit of freedom regardless of what we have to contend with in this life. He says, get rid of all forms of deceit. Stop lying to one another. Stop speaking in ways that are ingenuous, that are not sincere. He says, there is only Christ, and he is everything, and he is in everything. In one translation, it reads, he is everything in all of you. What we have to do is what St. Paul says a few verses later. Let the word of Christ in all its richness find its home in you. We have to allow Christ to live in our heart, not giving him just a part of our heart or the main of our heart. We all tend to have rooms, recesses, secret places of our heart where imperfection, where sin, where things that make us uncomfortable still dwell. We like to pull the door of those rooms closed, maybe even lock them from God, from ourselves. We don't like to have to go there to think about it. If Christ is to reign in our hearts, we have to give him access to absolutely everything in our heart because God alone heals the heart of the wounds of sin. All our sins, all our imperfections, our stumblings, our vices, are rooted in the wounds we have, some of them in consequence of the fall, original sin. We still have concupiscence with us even after we are baptized. And some of them are through things that have happened to us in our lifetime. 
We have wounds, and from those wounds, sin is born if we are not healed of them. So what we have to do is put on, we have to have Christ dwelling in us, and we must dress ourselves in Christ. As St. Paul says, clothe yourselves in heartfelt compassion, only by studying the person of Christ. Do we understand the attitude of mind and heart and of body that we must have in living in the world? He says, put on kindness, heartfelt compassion, kindness, put on humility, put on meekness, gentleness, patience. Bear with one another, he says in verse 13, bear with one another, forgive each other of the offenses and grievances that you have against one another. It's very interesting that he says to be forbearing. Forbearance is difficult for us. We have to bear with all the people around us. But we have to remember that everyone else has to bear with us. We can tend to think that if we didn't have to bear with some of the difficult people in life, we ourselves could be a better person. But this is to delude ourselves because it is the sin in us that makes us act the way we act, that makes, that irritates us so much in the presence of the imperfections of other people. Think about it. Think about how much God bears with us every single day of our lives. God has been forbearing with each one of us here today already. And he will be forbearing with us as the day continues. God is forbearing. There's a beautiful passage in the dialogue of the conversations that the Lord has with St. Catherine of Siena. And he speaks about this forbearance. And he speaks of how we are not very forbearing with each other. But he says, in fact, this is the way God converts hearts. He draws them to repentance. He gives them graces. He says, by having them stumble and being gentle with them, not saying anything exteriorly, not crushing us or oppressing us with it, but he does give us the grace to see ourselves in our stumblings, how we have acted in a certain situation, how we were embarrassed by something that we did, and yet no one said or did anything in response. They were forbearing toward us. He said it is much easier for people to receive the grace of conversion through forbearance. He says we do know, and in knowing it, he says the one who has stumbled, the one who has sinned, not only sees what needs to be done, the good to be done, but they quickly walk towards it and embrace it. God protects our dignity. He is very gentle in dealing with us. And so St. Paul says here, we must bear with one another. We must forgive one another. It's that attitude of heart we've talked about before. We have to have forgiveness ready in our hearts, not judging, not accusing, not criticizing, not looking at others and seeing the fault, but having compassion when we see others stumble. It could well be us. How would we want others to look at us when we stumble, when we act foolish or stupidly in the presence of others? We would want them to say, Lord, 
console them. I'm sure they're going to feel awful about what happened. Heal their heart. And heal me, Lord, of my sins. Let other people grant them the grace to be forbearing with me when I fail charity. So he says, God, the Lord, has forgiven you. Now you must do the same. This matter of purity of heart that he is talking about here, that the church speaks of so frequently, the pure of heart, as Jesus says, will see God. The pure of heart do see God, can see God. What are the pure hearts? The pure heart are those who have attuned their intellects and wills to the demands of God's holiness. We attune our intellect and will to the demands of God's holiness in three areas chiefly, the church tells us. In charity, the law of love, the law of Christ. In chastity or sexual rectitude and in love of truth and orthodoxy of faith. We must deeply love the truth, not only to know it, but to embody it, to live it in such a way that that truth is proclaimed by our lives. That is to have purity of faith. That is to have purity of heart and to be configured to that freedom that Christ has won for us. Thanks for listening to Real Presence Radio. If you are just tuning in, Dr. George of Sacred Heart Productions is going through the New Testament letters from Knowing the Scriptures Bible Study Program. For lessons, study guides, and more information, please visit sacredheartproductions.org. In this next segment, Dr. George will be covering the following topic, created free by God, set free by Christ. And now, back to Dr. George. After a brief exhortation to wives and husbands, a subject that we have already discussed in a previous lesson, towards the end of chapter 3, St. Paul now addresses slaves and their masters. And this is very interesting in light of what people would have understood in the first century about slavery. And the question may have arisen in people's minds as to how this fits into the picture of our life in Christ, our freedom in Christ. And what St. Paul says, he first speaks to slaves and tells them to be obedient in every way to people who, according to human reckoning, that's very important, are your masters. Do what is right not only when you are under their eye, that you want to please them, maybe you want your actions to look good, he says, but always, at all times. He tells them that whatever they do, and this would be true for all of us, whatever we do, we must work at it as though we were working for the Lord and not for men. St. Paul says, because it is the Lord that will repay us. It is he who keeps for us, who secures for us what he has promised his people. He is speaking, of course, of our eternal inheritance. And he says, remember, it is the Lord that you serve. Masters, slave owners, he goes on to say, you too make sure that your slaves are given what is fair and right, for you too have a master in heaven. What are we to make of this in light of the institution of slavery, which we know 
contravenes the law of God in that slavery treats persons as objects, as property that can be owned. There is a lot that God has been saying about this from the beginning. So we will start by going back to the beginning again and reminding ourselves first that man is created in God's freedom. We are given free will. God guarantees our freedom. Through the abuse of freedom, man himself brings about, brings into the world slavery. Slavery to sin, but slavery to sin in many, many forms. All sin is a form of slavery of one kind or another. God, in setting us free and liberating us, he sets us free so that we can serve him in holiness and justice all the days of our life. We can serve God and serve each other as we were created to do. So in talking about slavery, we have to distinguish something here. It's very important. Man was never, never created to be a slave or can he enslave other people. That is against, it is contrary to divine revelation. However, man was created to serve God and to serve one another. In fact, our holiness is tied to it. We are fulfilled as human beings by serving not ourselves, but by serving other people. Adam and Eve were given to each other as helpmates. So service, work, work too is a blessing. Service, work is not the problem. The problem is human slavery. And that is a result of sin, of the fall. Slavery was an institution that was established early on in human history. In fact, as far back as records go, we find the institution of slavery in virtually all the cultures, certainly in all the cultures of the ancient Near East. It had such a long tradition that at the time of Christ, and in fact in the centuries preceding it, the institution of slavery was a common and acceptable institution. It was even considered a social and economic institution. It was accepted by the people. Now, slavery actually begins, for the most part, slavery was the result of people who were taken captives, prisoners of war. With all the warring nations and the conquering of lands and peoples that went on, really from the beginning of history, those people that were conquered, those that survived the conquering, who weren't killed, those remaining of them, usually a number of them were taken back home and were enslaved to the people of the native place. This is why in the ancient records, when people recorded the booty that was taken from wars, at the top of the list was the number of prisoners taken. They were slaves. This was like the most precious kind of booty from conquest, from war. Those that remained in the land that the other nation had conquered, they made those people servants, slaves of them in the land. They lost their liberty because now there was another dominating nation and the people that used to live there in peace perhaps were made slaves of the conquerors. In the Sumerian language, 
there is a word, the oldest word that we can find for slave actually is translated literally foreigner. So slaves were the foreigners. They were not the people of rule. They were the foreigners. Slavery also came about through persons sold for debt. When people got in debt and they couldn't pay off the debt, they were enslaved to another until the debt might be paid off. And sometimes it was for a lifetime. In fact, in the ancient world, a person could sell himself into slavery to pay off a debt to another person. They could do this and did. But a lot of the people in slavery in the ancient world were simply born into slavery. Once someone became a slave, it was very difficult, almost impossible, to break that pattern and to get out of slavery. And all the children born to slaves were automatically owned by the person that owned the parents or those slaves. And slavery, in fact, they were not allowed to marry. They were mated for the purpose of increasing the number of slaves that a slaveholder might have. But down through the ages, the institution of slavery actually was completely undermined or was abolished through Christianity. And people say, well, how can that be? Slavery still exists. It's because sin exists. It's because of the depravity of people that all these forms of sin exist and will until Christ comes again. But God-fearing peoples understand we can have no part of the institution of slavery. It's contrary to the law of God. And it's because of Christianity that this happened already in the first century AD. But in the centuries preceding it, not only were there the slaves that were simply born as house slaves, they called them house-born slaves, not only did people become slaves for the purpose of paying off a debt that they owed someone in justice, not only were they slaves because they worked in a land under another people that had conquered them, and some of them were decently treated, but there were many perverse, wicked forms of slavery. There were people that were stolen through piracy and through brigandage, through even kidnapping, although even under the Code of Hammurabi, kidnapping was punishable by death, that you could not just steal a person from his or her family. There were slaves that were gained through what was called exposure. Women that had children they didn't want or they couldn't raise, and they would expose them was the word. They would leave them somewhere for someone else to take or perhaps even to die. But when these children were found, they were usually taken in by a family. They were made slaves. Fathers could and did sell their children into slavery, although oftentimes this was done under the guise of adoption, as if they'd been adopted. But the point is, is that there was money exchanged and those children were made slaves of someone else. Now, just to put it into perspective a little bit, there was a census taken in the Greek world in the late 4th century BC in Attica. Attica was the key or central region of Greece where the capital city of Athens was. They did a census and slaves accounted for a little more than half of the population a little more than half of the population of people were slaves. 
In Rome, under the empire, it is estimated that, similarly, about half the population were slaves. Now, the treatment of slaves depended upon their masters. There were people who treated the slaves decently, fairly, but there were many people who abused the slaves, and many times in terrible ways, in violent ways. They were very harsh to them. And this is one of the reasons that slaves would sometimes run away. If they did, there was severe punishment, but it's interesting that there was more severe punishment for the person who aided and abetted or who harbored a slave. There was greater punishment. In fact, that for the Babylonians was punishable by death, and the slave also was punished. But if somebody would return the slave, they were given a reward for it. They were given money for it. Some slaves were not harshly treated because the person who owned them had to feed them, clothe them, give them a place to sleep, take care of them. And many of them had a relationship with the slaves whereby they became sort of an extension of the family. They were never free, but they were treated decently. Even some of these slaves would run away. Why? Because they sensed in them that they were not made to be owned by another person. We know this. We don't have to be told by someone that we are free and that no other person can own us. We all have one owner, and he is God. And our master is the one who guarantees our freedom. We understand that. We understand the inalienable rights of all persons. We should understand it by natural law that every person has the right to freedom, to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. It's part of our dignity. But there were slaves who, in sensing this, didn't want to be owned, and they had no way of breaking free of this, and so they ran away. This would have been the case of Onesimus, running away from Philemon. Now, Paul, in telling him to go back, obviously Paul, in getting to know Onesimus and Rome, and he converts him to Christianity, he would have asked him about his life under Philemon. And had it been horrible, Paul would not have sent him back into the situation. The church does not. The church understanding our freedom and dignity, if, for example, in a marriage, the woman is being beaten by the husband, the church does not command that in light of what divine revelation says about the irrevocable bond of marriage, that that woman has to stay in that situation. The woman can and should leave the situation because her dignity and freedom depends upon not having to live under that kind of enslavement. So Paul would not have sent Onesimus back to Philemon had it been a situation of this kind of violence. But the point here that we really need to make before we glance at the letter to Philemon is that in the whole of the ancient world, where slavery, the institution of slavery, was common and was even accepted, an accepted institution, civilly and economically, there was, not surprisingly, no protest. We can find no protest against the institution of slavery in any of the ancient literature, with the exception of the Hebrew Scriptures divine revelation, where the Hebrew people were told by God they could not 
look upon or treat other people as the world did with its slaves. Now, the Hebrew people had slaves, yes, indeed, because it was part of, let us say, the natural culture of that day. But God was very specific, and what he said to the people from the beginning, he said, number one, remember, and he told them this over and over again, remember that you were slaves once too, and that I delivered you and set you free. You were slaves too. Remember what that was like. Remember how you hoped to be treated. And now you must treat your slaves in the same way. So that, secondly, in divine revelation, we find God giving specific instructions to the people we find in the book of Deuteronomy. God tells them how to deal with runaway slaves, with fugitive slaves. In many places, actually, in the Code of Holiness, the Deuteronomic Code, God speaks to them. And what does he say about the slaves, the foreigners, the fugitives among them? He says, you must treat them kindly. You must treat them as your neighbor, as your brother. This was radical in the ancient world. This was a radically new attitude, separate from the attitude that any of the pagan cultures or nations had towards slaves. In point of fact, Nehemiah tells us this. It's recorded in the book of Nehemiah. When a census is taken of the post-exilic community of Jerusalem, and that census does include slaves, they're counted and enumerated by Nehemiah, their slaves accounted for just fewer than one-seventh Nothing comparable to what the rest of the world had. One-seventh. And what had God told them commanding the slaves? He says, if a slave escapes from his master and comes to you, let him make his home among you and your people. Welcome him. Do not molest him. Do not bother him. Let him live in whatever town he prefers among you. Job, we recall with Job how terribly he was suffering, and his friends kept saying, you must have done something wrong. Job was a just man, but his friends kept saying, you had to have done something wrong, because the ancient peoples had this sense that if their life was filled with suffering and things were going wrong, they must have done something to offend God. Now, the pagans thought this with regard to their gods, but even the Israelites had sort of an imperfect sense of an all-loving, all-merciful God. But Job's friends say, you must have done something wrong. You just can't figure out what it is. You've forgotten about it. So he goes through this long examination of conscience, and he is asking in the presence of God, what have I done? In what way have I not pleased you? And there's a beautiful line in there where he says, have I ever infringed on the rights of a slave? I do know, after all, the Lord has taught him, hasn't every slave been created in the womb and born from the womb, just as I myself have? He was recognizing, he was saying, I know they are people, just as we are people. In the book of Sirach, the wisdom of Solomon, God says through Solomon, treat every slave like yourself. Treat him as a brother, the Lord says, since you need him 
as you need yourself. This is God speaking. This is unprecedented. And yet it's in the Old Testament. We will not get to the full understanding of all this until the revelation of the person of Christ. So Christ comes. Now the mystery is really amazing because what does God tell us? That Christ, he who is in the form of God, did what? Emptied himself and took the form of a slave. God, God, our creator, became a slave to redeem us and to set us free. Now, it is speaking, of course, about the slavery of sin and death to which man had consigned himself in the beginning. But it is also speaking about how our freedom is defined in service, in service to another, in a service of love. That's why Jesus says, anyone who wants to be first must make himself the slave of all. Now, we understand this in light of what it means to be a slave of Christ. And this St. Paul talks about all the time. We remember in his letter to the Corinthians, the first letter, he says, everyone should stay in whatever state he was when God called him. There were many people with this question in their minds saying, well, what do I do? How am I to go forward? And St. Paul says in several places, stay in the place where God has called you. This remains true to the end of time. God will make us holy. He will sanctify us in the very circumstances in which he has placed us, in which he has allowed us to be placed. If, for example, a person goes to prison, whether the person goes to prison injustice or unjustly, God can and will, he intends to make a saint of that person in that place, in that very place. So St. Paul is saying to slaves and masters, continue doing what you were doing, but now do it in Christ and in the freedom of the Holy Spirit. This is how we become a leaven in the bread of the world. This is how we become a light to the world. We are supposed to infuse the world, darkened by sin, consigned to slavery, with the freedom of the Spirit, with the light of Christ. We're supposed to teach. You see, God has, from the beginning, been calling man to be his collaborator. We're God's helpmate. We're a bride of Christ. We are the helper or the helpmate of Christ, our bridegroom. Our freedom and dignity are intimately tied to this. Thanks for listening to Real Presence Radio. If you are just tuning in, Dr. George of Sacred Heart Productions is going through the New Testament letters from Knowing the Scriptures Bible Study Program. For lessons, study guides, and more information, please visit sacredheartproductions.org. In this final segment, Dr. George will be continuing the topic, Created Free by God, Set Free by Christ. And now, back to Dr. George. God is calling man to collaborate with him in ushering in a new heavens and new earth. Yes, God could have done it in the person of Christ. He could have just plucked out the institution of slavery. He could have done something to just eradicate it completely and totally in that moment. 
God could do this with any of the sins of mankind. But our dignity and freedom aren't according to that kind of wisdom. All mankind sins with his tongue. It's been the fall of many down through the ages. God leaves the tongue with us. The tongue is a blessing. Service and work are blessings. He wants us, through the Holy Spirit and the freedom we have in God, He wants us to correct what is wrong and purify and elevate the whole created order. We have this tremendous work we've been given to do. St. Paul understood this. He knew that that is what God was doing in this particular instance with regard to the institution of slavery. That by masters and slaves becoming Christians, God would make a new world order. And so we have in the letter to, that St. Paul writes to Philemon, he has received this fugitive slave, Onesimus, who has run away from Philemon. Philemon, if we recall, is a son of Paul. Paul is spiritual father to Philemon. He was a convert to Christianity under St. Paul. And he feels tremendously indebted to him. And Paul is very beloved to him as a spiritual father. Now, Paul has also become a spiritual father to Onesimus. So he writes this letter and sends it in the hands of, of Onesimus. And he says to Philemon, I am appealing to you. This letter is an appeal for a child of mine whose father I became while I was wearing these chains. So now he's already indicating that Onesimus and Philemon are brothers in Christ. The name Onesimus means useful, literally. That's what the name means. And now Paul cleverly plays on this word, on his name, and he says, he was of no use to you before. Now, of course, Philemon would argue, perhaps, he was of use to me as a slave. But Paul is saying, no, he was of no real use to you as a piece of property. Now he has been set free in Christ. And this is the point. He is free in Christ. This is one of the reasons St. Paul, in several places of his letters, says to the early Christians, in Christ there is no male or female. There is no Jew or Greek. There is no free man or slave. We are one in Christ. And so he says, he was of no use to you before, but now he is truly useful, both to you and to me. He's useful as a disciple of Christ. He's useful because he has been transformed in Christ. He is a brother now of Philemon. And so I'm sending him back to you. He says, I am sending you my own heart. Now this would have had to have touched the heart of Philemon. He said he could have been a substitute for you to help me. Now Philemon probably would love to be with Paul in helping him. He says, he now could be a substitute for you. Imagine how that struck Philemon hearing that, that his slave, this one who he probably at some point in his life saw as a nobody, now Paul is saying, I have one like you with me, and I would love to keep him with me to help me. He is saying to proclaim the gospel. And he says, but I don't want to force your hand. I don't want to make you do the good. He is recognizing something that is so important in divine revelation. God shows us the good. He speaks to us about the good. He invites us to do the good. But God himself will never force us to do the good. 
That is to treat us like objects. It is to take away our freedom. And Paul will not do this with Philemon. So he says, I didn't want to do anything without your consent. This is why he is sending Onesimus back to Philemon. He wants Philemon to act in freedom of the Holy Spirit. He wants Onesimus to act in freedom of the Holy Spirit. And if we do this, what does it matter if we're slaves or masters? He has convinced Onesimus, it doesn't matter if you live out your life. As a slave of, of a master, St. Peter in his letter says, it's wonderful if we can work for a kind and reasonable master, but even if we work for someone difficult to please. You see, we're all in service to God under different kinds of people in this life. Some are kind and reasonable, and others are very difficult to please. This is why he says we can do this knowing we're free in Christ and knowing that whatever we do to serve another person, even if the person is difficult to please, we do for Christ. And in this way, no one can own us. We're completely free. That's why he also makes the point, if you are a slave, you are a free man in the Lord. And the master who is over you, he may be your master according to human reckoning, but he too is a slave of Christ because he belongs to God. And in this way, we end up, we're equal. So he says, I sent him back to you because I want you to act voluntarily in your freedom. I want you to choose the good, to decide what to do, and to do it because you are free to do it and because you want to do it. What good is a gift if it's forced? It's no gift at all. So he says, it's possible you have been deprived of Onesimus for a time merely so that you can have him back forever. God has let this trial, this difficulty take place to bring about a greater good. Now you can have him back, but what you're getting back is far more. It cannot even be compared to what he had before owning Onesimus as a slave. He says, now you have much more both on the natural plane, in the flesh, and in the Lord. He says, if he has wronged you in any way or taken anything, there's an indication that perhaps Onesimus stole something from Philemon, perhaps some bread or food or perhaps a little bit of money, because if he was running away, as a slave, he would have had no means to provide for himself. So he perhaps took a little something just to be able to survive. And he says, if he has wronged you in any way or owes you anything, Paul says, put it down on my account. I will repay you. Now, this is beautiful because, again, here's another moment. Paul is speaking on behalf of the Lord. The Lord is saying, if someone owes you something, don't worry about it. Put it on my account. You see, all of our debts have been paid by Christ. And we must forgive our debtors. We must forgive those who owe us debts because how can we demand they pay back a pittance when Christ has paid our full debt? So he is making that point. He says, I shall pay it back. He says, of course, I make no further mention, as he mentions it, of course, I make no further mention of the debt you owe me, which is your very self. You owe your whole life to me. Why? Because he proclaimed the gospel to him. He brought him into Christ's life, he says. And compared to that, he says, go ahead and put it on my account. But I make no further mention that you owe to me your very self. And he says, I am writing, as he concludes, in complete confidence in your compliance, sure that you will do even more than I ask. Now, what is that more? 
Well, I think there are hints of it in the letter. First of all, at the very least, by accepting Onesimus back, gladly and with open arms, and letting him work for him, he can no longer, he cannot possibly in Christ treat him as his property. Paul has made it clear, he is free. Yes, Onesimus can work for him. They can have some kind of equitable working arrangement. But he cannot treat him as his own property because he doesn't belong to Philemon in that respect. But he can do more. And what is that more? He can give him his freedom. He can set him free. After all, has not Philemon been set free in Christ? And why would he not set free than another person who actually is free in Christ, but who, legally speaking, is his slave. Remember, Paul said, I wish that I could keep him with me so that he could help me. In other words, he is saying, I wish he were free enough to proclaim the gospel. Now, if he works for Philemon, he can proclaim the gospel in that service of love. But he is hinting that if it occurs to you to emancipate him, to manumit him, to set him free, I will leave that up to you. There is certainly a suggestion of this. In the early church, the church, in understanding this and in speaking to Christians about this, did away with the whole concept of slavery in and among Christians. They could no longer, yes, the slaves could now work as servants. They could be employees under their masters. They could be set free, but it completely changed the institution of slavery in the very first century. In the church herself, there was never any distinction made. There could not be between freemen and slaves. In the administration of the sacraments, they were completely equal. Slaves were baptized, married, buried with all the same honors as freemen. And Paul insisted on this, and they insisted on this among themselves. They understood it. One of the early popes, Pope St. Callistus I, was born a slave of a slave mother. And he becomes one of the early popes of the church. It's amazing. It's beautiful. We are slaves in Christ, which means we belong to God, and we are free people. What we have to do is to go forward into the world, proclaiming the truth of the gospel so that the world knows how to contend with its own dilemmas, to find solutions to the social questions. There is no true solution to any social question, to any dilemma plaguing man, apart from the gospel. God is counting on us to make the truth known. As Jesus says, it is the truth that will set you free. He is counting on us to explain that truth, to take that truth into the world so that the world can be corrected of sin. The Lord Jesus speaks of this parable of the darnel or the weeds, and he sowed the good wheat, and the reapers come and say, but there are weeds that grew up all around the wheat. Should we go and yank out the darnel? And the master says, no. Because if you rip it out, you will rip out the wheat too. He says, wait until harvest. God allows the time to pass, and through the passage of time, the wheat will be kept alive, will be harvested, and whatever darnel remains at the end, as the Master says, will be gathered up and thrown into the furnace to be burnt. 
God is ushering in a new heavens and a new earth in time and in place, and we are part of that mystery. That is why we must do as St. Paul says. Let the word of God in all its richness make its home in you, in our heart, and in our land. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you for listening to Knowing the Scriptures Bible Study on Real Presence Radio. Lessons, study guides, and additional materials can be found online at sacredheartproductions.org. Please tune in next time while we continue the New Testament letters. Dr. George will be covering 1 Timothy chapter 1 and 2, which include the following three topics. Bishops, guardians of the sacred deposit. Second, petitions, prayers, and intercessions. And third, women in the liturgical assembly. Knowing the Scripture's Bible study is designed to help people understand Scripture in light of sacred tradition. All lessons include related questions and relevant readings from the Catechism of the Catholic Church. Knowing the Scriptures program is produced by Sacred Heart Productions, whose mission is to proclaim Christ and His love for His Bride, the Church.